You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. You know, you've got to think past the mistake and start making systems that are able to mitigate the actual impact of the mistake. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Margaret Cunningham. She's from Forcepoint. We're going to be talking about cognitive biases that lead to reasoning errors in cybersecurity. Be sure to stick around for that. All right, Joe, before we jump into our stories this week, we've got uh, some follow-up here. What do we have? We received a note from a listener named Alex who was replying to my question about receiving that phone call a couple episodes ago with the Alexa command. He says, hi, Dave and Joe. I was listening to Finding Targets of Opportunity episode where Joe got that automated message that tried to enable Alexa to do something. There are a few things that might be happening. One, Hmm. someone created a malicious Alexa skill and ring phones is the command to enable the skill, which of course would do anything that one could do with a dropper in the network. Two, there's a bug in an existing Alexa skill that the attacker knows how to abuse, which could have the same implications as above. And three, and this is my personal favorite, he says, Someone developed an Alexa skill where ring phones is the command to activate that skill. In an effort to legitimize or artificially inflate the number of uses of their skills, they sent the automated message that Joe received to as many people as they could. This could generate revenue from their in-app advertisements, or if Amazon pays a developer for numbers of uses, I'm not sure if this is part of the business model or not, or... As stated before, it is simply to inflate the number of users or downloads to make the app appear legitimate. All the best, Alex. I think Hmm. that's good. We also got some other feedback from this that was I I tested and turned out that's not the case. I actually got one of these calls again this week. They didn't issue any commands, but there's a a background noise that's very distinctive when I get the call. Hmm. And there's nobody on the other end. And the call will hang on indefinitely until I finally hang up. Hmm. What kind of background noise? It's like a low rumble, like almost like uh, like a white noise. Huh. Okay. That's Maybe it's a pink noise. I don't know, but it's a very distinctive tone. I remember it every time I hear it. I'm like, this is the right. same same thing again. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and suddenly you found yourself online with an, an irresistible urge to, to buy cookies or something. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> That's what it is. It's subliminal advertising being sent to right. me. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> All right. Well, our thanks to our listener, Alex, for sending that in. Uh, a real quick note, we got a, a note from a listener named Brandon who was reminding us we were talking about DNS names and trying to find similar DNS names. He he pointed out the site dnstwister.report, which we've talked about here, I believe, in a past episode. Yes. Um, but it's a, it's a useful online tool for finding similarly named websites and mm-hmm. can save you a lot of time in, in that effort. So... Thanks to our listener for sending that in. We would love to hear from you, of course. Uh, if you have something for us, you can write into hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. So let's dive into some stories here. Uh, my story this week comes from the folks over at Vox on their Recode website. 
The uh, title of the article is Dark Patterns, the Tricks Websites Use to Make You Say Yes, Explained. This is written by Sarah Morrison. And this notion of dark patterns, Joe, is this something you're familiar with? Yes. The classic example is the fake hair on the screen, right? <laughs> like right. I, I do an overlay of a hair on a screen and then get you to touch the screen to wipe the hair off. But in so doing, I also get you to click on a button in, on the screen that is mm-hmm. represented by the hair. Mm-hmm. Well, this article digs into many of the different uh, types of dark patterns. And, and to sort of explain what a dark pattern is, it's a way to – it is a type of social engineering. Mm-hmm. And it is a way to sort of force your hand to, to influence you to make the decision that they want you to make that may not be in your best interest. And so there, there's several examples here in this article. There's one from Instagram uh, where Instagram wants access to – uh, your website activity, in asking you to do so, they give you two options. They say make ads less personalized or make ads more personalized. Right. Well, uh, there is no don't show me ads button. <laughs> right. And there's also <laughs> no a... there's also no don't share my information button. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. And so uh, you think, well, gosh, if I have to see ads, I guess it would be better for them to be personalized. Uh-huh. And if you press that button, then you're sharing all your information with Instagram. Right. Uh, so in the way that they word this question, and of course they have the, the one that uh, that they want, whether you share your information, they have that one preloaded, ready to be clicked, highlighted. <laughs> right. like that's the it's one. It's the default selection, to, Dave. Right, right. There's a bunch of other ones. You know, I think we've all been on those websites where you, some ad pops up on the screen and you have to spend the next 10 seconds searching around the screen for the little tiny X that you yes. have to click to oh. get rid of it. Yeah, and if you miss the X, the you actually go to the advertiser's page, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So how that's is that, another how is example. That not considered clickjacking. I don't know. Well, uh, it's a good question. There's some other ones where they'll have some sort of false sense of time running out. They have an example here with a, a website called Ultimate Guitar Pro, and uh, they have a spring sale, Pro Access, eighty percent off, and there's a countdown timer that says, you know, five hours forty. 40 minutes, 57 seconds, and it's counting down. And they point out that uh, their access sale has been a few hours away from ending for the past several months, if not years. <laughs> right. If you reload so, the page, it goes back to five hours, 40 minutes, and 57 seconds. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. And also, historically, they, they make uh, the point that, you know, you and I, Joe, we grew up in the days of uh, the Columbia Record Club. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> Remember that? Columbia, yes. Columbia House Record Club? I got roped and, into that once. <laughs> this was... For our younger users, this was a thing that you'd get. It was usually an advertisement in your Sunday newspaper, a big, big full page color ad. And it would say, you know, 12 records, tapes or CDs for a penny. Right. And uh, this seemed like a a good deal. (laughs) So you'd send in, you'd you'd select your your 12 uh, CDs or cassettes or albums and they'd send them to you. But what you were really signing up for was a monthly delivery of a overpriced album. And the point is that a lot of these sorts of things, these patterns are still in apps today. There are lots of apps. I got almost roped into one recently. I was looking for an app to do some simple little function that I needed to have done. And one of the options was an app that had a a free three day trial. Joe, oh, for don't, three days you could no, no, no. you could try the app for th- three days. What do you think happened after those three days? You, you get billed a monthly fee of like one hundred and fifty bucks or something like that. <laughs> it was twenty nine dollars a week. A, a week. week. Oh my god. 
Right. And and so the other notion here is that these app companies, they figure in the heat of the moment, you're going to do the thing you want to do. You're going to forget about it. And then in a few days, they're going to bill you the $29 or whatever it is. And they hope, A, you're not going to notice and you're just going to pay it. Right. Or if you do notice, you will just delete the app, shut off the payment, but it's not worth your trouble to go back and get the refund for the original. Right. And so they profit. What's being done about this? Well, um, there are some steps being taken to try to uh, tamp down on these things. Uh, if you live in California, uh, California's Consumer Privacy Act, the CCPA, actually has provisions in it to help fight this sort of thing. So if you find yourself uh, falling victim to this, you may want to report that to the powers that be in California. Um, Congress is taking a look. Uh, Senator Mark Warner and uh, Deb Fisher uh, have introduced a bipartisan bill called the Detour Act, which of course has to stand for something, and it yes. stands for Deceptive Experience to Online Users Reduction. How clever! Yeah, I think there's an entire office in and up on Capitol Hill that is dedicated to the creation of clever acronyms. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> a national treasure, a person who just has a knack for this. Right. <laughs> they, they pay lots of money to just you know. It's probably yeah, just rattle of them off. And the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission is also looking to tamp down on this. Evidently, they have some existing ability. This article refers to Section 18 of the FTC Act, uh, which allows them to make rules to kind of uh, try to fight this sort of thing. So, you know, it's a cat and mouse. It's a whack-a-mole. But it's good to see that it has caught the attention of regulators and they're trying to do something about it. Um, In the meantime, I think it's just something to be aware of. and, And as we always say, you know, warn your friends and loved ones about that uh, these things are out there. Particularly, I think the the apps are particularly troubling because yeah. if your kids download a game or your your folks download uh, some sort of utility or something like that, and the next thing you know, they're they're paying way more than it's possibly worth, and they're just getting scammed out of money. I was joking when I said 150 bucks a month, but your the app you were talking about actually does cost 150 bucks a month if you have a five week <laughs> month. Um, right, right. There was the the Smurf app. Do you remember that when the Smurfs movie came out? No, I don't. Um, and kids had to buy Smurf berries, and they were like billing their parents' credit cards for like five hundred dollars to play the video game <laughs> on their phones. Right, right. And people right. went bananas. And uh, Apple, I think, said, "No, this is not going to happen." I may be misremembering this. Uh, but yeah, it was. I know it was the Smurfs app, and there were Smurf berries that kids were buying. Right, and it was costing right. people a lot of money. Yeah, to their credit, I know at least on the Apple store, uh, Apple is pretty quick to refund people's money when these sorts of things happen and try to shut them down on the App Store. But they can only do that if you report it. And like we said, so many people just don't feel like it's worth their time. Or or they could be embarrassed that they fell for something like this. So they just figure it's a cost of a, a lesson learned and they move on. And on the other side of the argument, as an app developer, you're entitled to charge whatever you want for the app. I think it should be easy for you to cancel it and get your money back easier. And if Apple makes it easy, hopefully Google does too. I don't know. I've never, never had this issue. I don't sign up for apps with recurring fees. Just as not, I I don't see the value in it, but that you know of that I know of. That's right. Maybe I'll find an app (laughs) one day that actually does everything I need to do. That's right. That's right. (laughs) And I'd happily pay 30 bucks a week for it, but I haven't found that app yet. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's my story this week. Uh, What do you have for us this week, Joe? Dave, I have a story from ZDNet that uh, is written by Danny Palmer. And we talked about this last week on the Cyberwire. And it's called, mm-hmm. Why Do Phishing Attacks Work, 
blame the humans, not the technology. Uh, the first thing I want to do here is take issue <laughs> with the word blame the humans. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't think you blame the humans who fall for the phishing attack. I think you blame the humans who are sending the phishing emails. The, those are the people who are at fault. Those are the criminals. Those are the nefarious actors. The yeah. people who click the apps are doing what people do. And uh, then the subheading says uh, of this article says, uh, cyber criminals know that people want the easiest route to resolving an issue, and phishing emails are designed to take advantage of that, which we've talked about many times. Now, in a social engineering attack, there are a number of elements, and usually you'll find all of these elements, in, or most of these elements, not all, but there's a pretext, right, which is a lie about who this person sending you the email is and why they're contacting you. Then there's an appeal, which is some emotional appeal that they're trying to elicit from you, and that's usually fear, greed, or a desire to help uh, our fellow humans, right, or maybe right. some combination of those two things. Usually you see greed and desire to help paired. That's what those uh, those emails about the hey, I'm about to die and I have all this money. Can you help me? And you can take some money. That's appealing to both of those issues, right? Right, right. Uh, and then there's an artificial time constraint and some call to action. And then sometimes we'll see isolation, which is a very powerful tool that they'll use. But we don't always see that. But all of these elements are almost always in a phishing email, with the exception of isolation. It comes and goes, right? Um, mm -hmm. Isolation mm -hmm. you see in those sextortion emails. Like, don't tell anybody about this. That's them trying to isolate you. The article says the messages are designed so that clicking the phishing link is the easiest thing to do. Danny quotes Troy Hunt and he says, part of the problem is that phishing signals are often indistinguishable from positive user experience attributes, right? So in other words, what a phishing email looks like is exactly the same as what another email would look like. It doesn't seem out of place. And that's kind of why they work. Users can choose not to follow the link and open a new window and go to the website to verify the message's authenticity, thus avoid the phishing link. However, phishing attacks are successful for the previous two reasons. In other words, people look for the easiest way to solve the problem, and the phishing email looks indistinguishable from another email. One of the things in the article is that Danny Palmer uses the word coerced in referencing controlling user behavior, and, and he's right. Coercion is a very common tool, but it's not the only tool that they use. They also use like I said, the appeal to greed or the desire to help anything that someone seems to be appealing to you, you know, it's like almost like pandering. You got to almost have this like skepticism when you're looking for pandering or someone trying to scare you, uh, mm -hmm. which I think is a good quality to have that if you're skeptical of, of those kind of things all the time, you're better off. But in emails, you should be learning to spot that kind of thing. You shouldn't be falling for these uh, appeals to your base emotions. The defenses for this are very similar, whether you're talking about the individual person or you're talking about a uh, an organization. If you have the three prongs of defending against this, you got technology, training, and policy. Your technology is for everybody, including organizations and individuals. Use multi-factor authentication wherever you can and use the best form that's available to you. Use a password manager so that you're not reusing passwords because you don't want one account getting compromised and then all of your accounts getting compromised or all your accounts that use that password getting compromised. Next is training. In a company, the best thing to do is have a security awareness program that all of your employees have to attend on a regular basis. Of course, if you're in person, you don't have that opportunity, you know, if you're an individual, but you can always listen to this podcast, which I think is great, but I'm already preaching to the <laughs> choir there, right? Right. So tell your friends about the podcast. Uh, and finally, have a policy in place. If you're an organization and somebody receives an email that says, hey, we're changing this information about our banking, send our money here, have a policy that says, 
that requires a phone call, right? Or that requires some other form of authentication or authorization. If you have a personal policy, I don't ever click the link, right? And that's kind of my personal policy, right? Like I get a uh, an email from somebody that says, is this you on Instagram? This is a very common phishing email tactic where they just have a very short message, like, is this you or can you help me or are you in? And then they have a link that's a phishing link. So don't click the link and go to the website personally. Enter, enter the uh, Use either your links that you have in your browser or manually type it and go that way. All right. Well, it's a good story. We will have uh, links to all of our stories in the show notes. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from Big Mike. He's a listener to the show, and he says it's a little bit different than most catches of the day. He listens to old-time radio podcasts, and one he just listened to had a perfect example of social engineering. It's from the great detectives of old-time radio podcast. This one is from episode 3423 of the great detectives of old-time radio podcast, Casey, crime photographer, lady killer. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Tony Marvin. Every week at this time, the Anchor Hawking Glass Corporation of Lancaster, Ohio, and its more than 10,000 employees bring you another adventure of Casey, crime photographer, ace cameraman who covers the crime news of a great city. Written by Alonzo Dean Cole. Our adventure for tonight, Lady Killer. Mid-afternoon, the cocktail lounge of a luxurious resort hotel in Colorado. A man enters, surveys the place with casual approval, and saunters toward the bar. He's about 35, well-dressed and rather good-looking. But there's nothing distinctive about him. As he waits for one of the bartenders to serve him, he hums an old tune. Would it be, sir? Uh, martini, please. Extra dry. Yes, sir. Say, haven't I served you before, sir? Well, no, I just checked into the hotel an hour ago. This is my first visit to the bar. Uh, I, I don't mean here. Someplace else. Maybe L.A. I worked there last year. No, I've never been to Los Angeles. Denver? Frisco, then? No, I'm sure we've never met before. I've spent the last ten years in Europe. Well, I've never been across the water. Yet. I guess you just remind me of somebody. Yes, I imagine that's it. Yeah, see how this martini strikes you. Uh-huh. Hmm. Oh, it's exactly right. That's how I try to make everything. Call me when you want another. Uh, my name's Frank. Uh, Frank. Oh, yeah? I shan't want another for a while, so I'll pay you now. You are? Uh, keep the change. Say, thanks. Quite all right. Oh, uh, by the way, that uh, fine-looking woman at the corner table over there, you know her? The brunette with the big diamond rings? Uh-huh. Yeah, I know her. Her face is very familiar. I was just wondering... If... <laughs> You've probably seen her picture in the papers. There was a big story about her a couple of weeks ago when she got a Reno divorce from her husband, plus a million-dollar settlement. Oh. Uh, she's Madeline Chalmers. Oh, yes, yes, of course. I used to wait on her back in Toledo, where she comes from. I worked there two years ago. She and another wealthy lady named Utley used to say I was the only bartender they'd ever met who could make a planter's punch exactly right. This uh, Mrs. Utley, she's a close friend of Mrs. Chalmers? Uh, Miss Utley. She was one of them bachelor girls then. Or since she's married a banker named Fisher. Yeah, she and Mrs. Chalmers were pals. Well, I'm acquainted with a banker named Fisher. I believe he married Nutley. 
Let's see now. His first name now, is... This one's uh, first name is Douglas. He the one you know? Well, his wife's first name is... Irene. Uh, Irene Utley. Uh-huh. They're the people. I'm told they took a trip to Europe last year where you were. I guess you met him over there. Yes, London or Paris, I think. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Fisher aren't here by any chance. Oh, no, no. Mrs. Chalmers tells me they're up in Maine this summer. Bar Harbor. Well, since Mrs. Chalmers is alone, I shouldn't be intruding if I introduce myself, I suppose, and inquired about my friends, the, uh, Fishers. Oh, I don't think so. I'll see you later, Frank. Ah, thanks again, Mr. Uh, uh... thank you. How do you do, Mrs. Chalmers? I beg your pardon? I can see you've forgotten me. Irene Utley introduced us several years ago in uh, Toledo, I think it was, uh, before she married Doug Fisher. Oh, you're a friend of Irene's and Doug's? Well, I spent a day with them only a week ago in Bar Harbor. How are they? Irene hasn't written to me in ages. Oh, they were fine, enjoying themselves. Uh, may I sit down and order us... Uh, I seem to remember you had a preference for planter's punch. Uh, do sit down. Thank you very much. I'm terribly embarrassed. You remember even my favorite drink, and I can't Well, recall. unlike you, I have a face that people soon forget. My name is Grammerton, Cecil Grammerton. Cecil Grammerton. You uh, plan to stay here for some time, Mrs. Charles? At least several weeks. Well, I'm going to remain about the same period, and uh, if you'll permit our acquaintance to ripen, I'll try hard not to be forgotten again. Well, Joe, what do you think about that? Well, I'll tell you, Dave, that's pretty good. I like a... <laughs> I want to thank Big Mike for sending this in. I, although this is a dramatization, this is a great example of two key components of social engineering. First, uh, intelligence gathering, right, or, or OSINT. Uh, this guy, back in 1947, when this came out, it did. they didn't have the internet, right? The internet actually did <laughs> right. not exist back then. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, this guy goes into the the single source of information of uh, the bartender, and he gives the guy a tip, which gets him talking, and mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. people love to talk and, and show off how much they know. And then he uses that information to build a pretext to approach the victim. It's exactly how social engineering works in modern days. It's just we don't ask the bartender; we ask LinkedIn or Facebook. Walks into the conversation with with total confidence and just starts sort of filtering in. Little bits of information, little facts, sets the woman off of her balance because she's wondering to herself, oh, how could I have forgotten this person? I'm so embarrassed. Right. You know, this Obviously, we must have met before. How else could this person know so much about me? Absolutely. And, uh, and away they go. Yeah, and yep. off, off they go with the confidence game, right? Yep, and this is a, uh, a reminder. And one of the things that, that Mike says is people think of social engineering as a recent occurrence, and it's not. It's, it's been around for millennia. Yeah. Absolutely. Our thanks to Big Mike for sending in that catch of the day. Again, it's the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio podcast. This was episode 3423, Casey, crime photographer, lady killer. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Margaret Cunningham. She's from a company called Force Point. And our discussion centered on cognitive biases that can lead to reasoning errors in cybersecurity. Here's my conversation with Dr. Margaret Cunningham. 
Unfortunately, people have limited capabilities of, you know, paying attention or remembering things. And when we have attackers who are focused on those specific types of mistakes, like, you know, slipping up or clicking something that's suspect without thinking, um, they're very good at manipulating the environment so that you make more of those mistakes. Um, (laughs) They've really got it down pat. In addition, they're very good at manipulating emotion and trying to get people to feel like they're in a hurry or they're in trouble, which is very, very effective for making those types of mistakes. Yeah, you know, it's something we talk about on this show a lot about how they kind of short circuit your your critical thinking and and uh, you know make you do things that you probably otherwise wouldn't do by by just cranking up your emotions. Yeah, absolutely. And it, there's a framework that is a decision making framework that looks at the difference between the types of decisions people make when they're in a hot state. So they've got worry, anxiety, time pressure versus a cold state where, you know, they're sort of able to sit back and think more logically, a little bit more analytically about whatever they need to make a decision about. Um, Hmm. So that hot versus cold is something that is easily manipulated and also something that uh, really benefits the attackers. Can we dig into that a little bit? How do you define that hot state? This is sort of a different type of example, I'll say. Mm -hmm. So if you think Mm -hmm. about the choices that you would make about your end-of-life care when you are 25, (laughs) you think, you know what, it's fine. When I'm 85, if I'm already really sick, you know what, just just let me go. I don't want any of the interventions. I don't want to spend the money. Um, That's a very cold decision-making state. Um, You're not in the heat of the moment. You're not experiencing the emotions of being close to the end of your life. But, you know, in contrast... I can speak actually from experience. My, my grandmother, who was in her late 80s, thought that she would never want to go through cancer treatment. And when she was um, much older and suffering from cancer, she was determined to do the treatments. Um, and it's a totally different type of decision. It's much more emotional than if you can put your, that distance between it. And that's very extreme, but we, we go through this all the time at a kind of smaller level throughout the day. Are there things that, that people can do to be self-aware when they find themselves in a hot state? Or, or is it the the hot state by its very nature leads you astray? You know, I think there are a lot of things that we can do to prepare people for specific types of hot states that are linked to cybersecurity issues. Hmm. So right now in the middle of Texas, a lot of people are without power. They're cold they're hungry, they're worried about their water, everything else. If you're an organization who has a ton of employees in Texas, it would be a great idea to start communicating with them about what they can expect from the company. And what I mean by that is let them know that no one's going to ask for their account information. No one's going to ask about the status of their home network. Give them the correct phone numbers to call if they need someone. And by giving all of that information explicitly and concretely, it takes the burden off of the person. And that's very helpful when you're stressed out. And I suppose, I mean, part of that story is that the the scammers are are likely going to be trying to take advantage of these people who are in this difficult situation when they're already emotionally and, and physically vulnerable. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm parked in a hotel right now, which is very lucky. But if someone called me, knew my name, obviously had my phone number, and then told me there was something wrong at my address and they needed information about, you know, my electric account or my, my water, um, I might give it to them because I'm very worried about my home and I can't check on it. Mm -hmm. We see this sort of predatory behavior during a lot of crisis. Let's go through some some of the the uh, the types of vulnerabilities here. Some of the, some of the biases. I want to get your take on this thing called availability bias. What's that? Your memory is a funny creature. Basically, sometimes it works like a big stack of paper. Whatever is closest to the top of the stack is the thing you grab for. So, if you keep hearing about something over and over and over again, you're likely to think that that's the thing that's causing problems. Um, For instance, right now we are being bombarded by uh, cybersecurity news about solar winds and Russian hackers and all of these very important factors that are impacting all of our organizations. But the reality is that's not the whole picture. And if we focus too much on that because it's the most available, then we might be missing the boat for things like social engineering attacks during crisis. So we can't let the, the distraction of these shiny objects take us away from that, that basic day-to-day hygiene that's so important. Yeah, absolutely. And it can really impact where resources are spent at the organizational level. So we have CEOs and you know, important people running companies, and they hear over and over again about Russian hackers, right? They might say, that's where I'm going to spend this quarter's money trying to protect against this and uh, kind of move things away from from the basics that might actually serve them better. What about this this notion of uh, here referred to as the problem exists between keyboard and <laughs> chair? Uh, you know, without uh, blaming the user, but uh, often that's the that's the weak link, right? Yeah, you know, I I don't really like calling people the weak link, um, mm. mostly because if you look at people on the grand scale of things, we're doing a great job. Actually, we're doing a phenomenal job. It's just these little tiny pieces that aren't quite there. So the problem exists between keyboard and chair is sort of an old phrase, like somebody calls and they need help with their computer. And the tech support person is looking at the problem and going, oh my gosh, the problem isn't the technology, it's the person. Right. What's funny about that is You know, there's something in psychology called the fundamental attribution error, a big long name for when somebody else makes a mistake, I blame it on that person. Something about that person is the reason why they made the mistake. But if I make the same mistake, I have something called the self-serving bias where I can find all of the environmental factors that got to me. And those environmental factors are why I made the mistake. Um, you know, simple example, you watch somebody trip on a sidewalk and you're like, oh, what a clumsy fool. Um, right. <laughs> right. you know, right. and you're like, right. oh man, what a klutz. <laughs> um, but if right. you trip every on other sidewalk, driver right? on the road is an idiot. Right. And uh, but I, but not me. I... <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Never me, never me. Yeah. And it, you know, and it's funny because this happens at a really, really large scale in tech because, <laughs> We're always sort of finger pointing, okay, well, if I'm the user, I'm going to say, you know, my company should have had a better email filter. 
Uh, mm. The company is going to say, this person should have been paying attention and never clicked that link. Heck, they took our training. <laughs> right. And um, the problem with it is that it doesn't really get to the root of the problem. And so we're still, you know, standing around pointing fingers and, and suffering from the same, same issues. <laughs> How do we overcome these things? How do we get past some of these, these biases? It's never going to be perfect. And, and I actually don't think there's a way to design anything that's perfect, technology, people, whatever. Um, but what we can do is we can think about the types of mistakes people make when they're making those mistakes and how to make our systems a little bit more dynamic in their response. So if you know that you have a big issue with people getting fished at your company, uh, you're going to have to think about the things that happen after they click the link. What can you do to prevent being stuck with a crazy screen asking for Bitcoin because you've got ransomware? Mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you've got to think past the mistake and start making systems that are able to mitigate the actual impact of the mistake. That's a tall ask, I know. <laughs> yeah. But what about the, the, the culture itself? I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, making it so that your people aren't afraid of making mistakes or they aren't afraid of, of retribution if they make a mistake that, you know, these are more learning opportunities than something that someone's going to get punished for. When people have to hide their mistakes, they fester. Um, if, if I know that I'm being scrutinized in a way that if I make one wrong move, I may lose my job. I am never going to admit to a mistake. And that actually exposes companies to a huge risk. Um, in a lot of other industries where there's a lot at stake, say aviation, we not only like encourage sharing the mistakes, we encourage sharing the near misses. And I don't think that we're doing that very much in this industry. It's really important that we start thinking of our organizations and our employees as more than their employee number. It will actually have a positive impact on your safety culture. You know, I think when people don't feel invested in their organization or they feel that their organization is not invested in them, they're less likely to engage in positive behaviors. All right, Joe, what do you think? Dave, I'm, I'm very happy to see that Dr. Cunningham is a principal research scientist focused on human behavior. One of the things I've been saying for a long time now is that we don't have enough people focusing on the human side of cybersecurity. And uh, I'm glad that, that she's here. And I think we need more people doing this kind of research. Uh, I think we're getting better at this as a community, as a cybersecurity community. There are more people focusing on this, but I don't think we're where we should be. We tend to focus on the technology side because that's uh, you know, we're technology people for the most part, but uh, there's a, definitely a place for the psychology and the human side of this in the field. Mm -hmm. It is a great observation that Dr. Cunningham makes about at the start of the interview, our capabilities are limited. We don't like to think about that. We don't like to think of ourselves as having limited capabilities, but it is the fact. And uh, attackers have the ability to manipulate people and the skills to do so. So they're going to exploit that and they're going to take advantage of that limitation that you have and try to get you to do things that are counter to your interest. I like the description of hot state and cold state and her healthcare example, she calls them extreme, but I think they're very valid. Uh, she goes on to talk about the power outages in Texas. And if you think about these kind of things, 
These are very low on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you're not familiar with that, it's a uh, it's like a pyramid shape of uh, it's a, a standard psychological I don't know model I guess. It talks about how if you don't have your base needs met, then you'll never meet your higher needs, right? And I was looking at it the other day, and I was thinking about where the social engineering attacks hit us, and they hit us fairly low on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. They they try to elicit our fear, our greed. They're not going after our higher functions. They're going after our lower functions. I like what she says about PEBCAC, you know, problem exists between chair and keyboard, uh, and <laughs> the fundamental attribution error and self-serving bias. And your your comment, everybody else on the road is an idiot and I'm, I'm great at driving. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it, it, driving is not the only place this happens. That's absolutely correct. Everyone likes to blame someone else. And if that's the case, we never will actually solve the problems. We have to look at what the real problem is. Thinking past the mistake and build a system that can mitigate the mistake. And she says, this is a big ask. And it is a biggie. I think that it starts with a holistic approach. Realize that the success of a phishing email is the failure of a system, not just the part of a system or a person. For example, if there's a credential phishing email uh, that comes through and somebody clicks on the link and gives up their credentials, what has failed is the email server accepted the delivery, and there are, there are mitigations you can put in place to stop that from happening, right, if it's uh, by verifying the sender. The spam filter missed it. The user spam setting missed it. The user clicked on the link. The web filters, either the, uh, the network web filters or the browser-based web filters missed it. The user doesn't double-check the domain. There's some manner of multi-factor authentication failure, and the attacker is in, Right. That's seven mm-hmm. different things, and, and there might be even more, but that's seven things I can think of off the top of my head that if fail in order for a, a user to cough up their credentials. Any one of those things works, and the attack fails, right? Right. So it's mm-hmm. a system, and we have to think like that. Building a culture where mistakes are allowed to fester is very bad. Nothing good comes of that. When people don't feel invested, they are less likely to engage in positive behaviors like coming forward with a mistake they've made. If people are motivated to cover up their mistakes, no good can come of that. Yeah, you have to look at it as being a learning opportunity and not an opportunity to punish people or you know make them feel bad. Uh, absolutely not. Everybody can learn from these mistakes. Yeah, Carrots, not absolutely. sticks, right? <laughs> there you go. Well, our thanks to uh, Dr. Margaret Cunningham for joining us. Uh, we do appreciate her taking the time. That is our show. We'd like to thank all of you for listening. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 